On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show, as we wrap up the week with Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson, we are going to be talking technology. There's a report out that certainly suggests that Ontarians are feeling a little too dependent on their tech. Is that the case? Or is technology making things so much better for us that anyone who would say that, maybe they just don't get it. We'll talk about that one. Uh, There is also a study out from McMaster University. This one is very interesting and could have wide-ranging implications, suggesting that unless you are at high risk with a pregnancy, having your baby at home and having the baby in the hospital, no difference. Results, safety, all that kind of stuff, no difference. Which presumably in the long run, if this turns out to be true and this turns out to be true over a long period of time, think of what money could be saved by the system. Cause you would think that having a baby at home would be a lot cheaper than doing it in the hospital. And finally, we're going to be chatting with Rick Zamper. We're going to talk Ticats. They have a game this week against BC. BC, not good this year. Ticats, pretty good this year. Historically, kind of game that if you're a Ticat fan, you go, oh, Tycast should win this one, will they? Rick and I will talk about it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. This is, uh, this is a story that I, I didn't really not expect, which means I did expect, I guess the double negative. But some of the numbers caught me off guard, mostly because they're way lower than I thought they would be. I'll tell you what it is. There's a study out by a group called Simply, S-I-M-P-L-I-I, creative spelling, simply financial. And what it's suggesting, and they're not saying it in so many words, but I think you can read between the lines here, asking the question about whether or not Ontarians in particular have become overly dependent on technology. And here, let me start with this, because one of the things that jumped off the page when I was reading this And surprised me again, I think maybe because I thought the number might be a little bit higher, was this new study says two of five Ontarians feel anxious when they're separated from their device, their iPhone, their smartphone, their iPad, whatever you want to call it. Two of five physically feel anxious when they can't find their phone. I know that around here last week, I'm not going to say who it was because I don't want to embarrass the person, but here in the CHML newsroom, as a lark, as a bit of a joke, I hid somebody's phone. Actually, I put it underneath their Tupperware where their sandwich was in, but just so they couldn't see it. And of course, I come into the studio, do the show, and suddenly this person is glaring through the window at me. Someone had said I had hidden the phone. I was told afterwards he was pacing. Kind of ties in exactly what I'm thinking. Two of five Canadians, two of five Ontarians, pardon me, feel anxious when they are without their device. Let me bring in Derek Sardo, who's the president of Rolling Thunder. Uh, Derek, how are you today? Wonderful. Yourself? I don't I, think we've ever had the pleasure. No, but I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here on a beautiful Friday. I'm glad to talk about technology and stuff. Um, you surprised... You sure you don't want to talk about the golden age of the dog? Well, we can do that too if you want to stick around. <laughs> Happy to have you stick around. You can be here all afternoon, Derek. There you go. Uh, Um, When I saw the number that two of five Ontarians feel anxious when separated from their device, I really thought if I was going to see a stat like that, that it would be a lot higher than 40%. You think so? I do. I feel like people now... Why do you think think that? I mean, the the word anxious is is sort of fuzzy, but uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that there's no... Um, real anxiousness that uh, that affects this person's uh, well-being because that wouldn't be healthy. 
You think that, but do you think that people's connection right now, their relationship with their iPhone or their smartphone is healthy? I think most people, it's, it's way beyond that. It's a, it is a dependent. There's no, there's no question about it. Um, now, can it be a dependence in a good way? I think so. At times, uh, yeah. You know, I, I come from the technology world, and, and uh, that's what I live and breathe every day. So I actually enable this for people. Uh, but I also understand the dangers of it and the dangers of uh, becoming dependent on anything. It's just really like a drug. Um, you have to let go. And uh, how do you do that? I, that? That's the biggest question, Is and, and everybody's different. But um, I think there's a couple of reasons why people get anxious. First of all, there is the astronomical cost of this device. Yeah, that's true. You just so don't want to replace one. When it's out of your touch, uh, the first thing that goes through your mind is uh, it's a $1,000 device, <laughs> and I don't want to replace that. The second thing that goes through your mind is uh, how am I going to uh, – all my numbers and all my uh, contacts are in there, my social media is in there, and, and what am I going to do without that? Uh, I'm not so worried about that. I'd be worried about the $1,000. Uh, yeah, among other things, and uh, and also the fact that you know I'm up to level eight hundred and something in Candy Crush, and I may have to start over. <laughs> I'm a bad one to talk about that because <laughs> I don't play games, but uh, I know that it consumes a lot of time. In this report that Simply uh, created, it's actually quite good. It, what a what a wonderful marketing uh, thing! So Simply Financial is the uh, let's call it the banking arm uh, or the public uh, arm to CIBC. And so it's a great report if you want to go look at it. Just look at this for the Simply Report. It's called a deep dive on digital trends in Canada. It's it's really quite interesting because it has some great stats in there. Among the forty percent, and again, I, I think the anxiety. I I don't know that you know anxiety. I don't know we're diagnosing it medically as anxious, but that you just sort of feel like where's the phone? Where's the phone? It's in the back of your mind. Where where's my device gone? I think if we wait 20 years, that number might be 90%. Wait till the, wait till the 70, 80, 90-year-olds are gone, and it's the kids who have now grown up with this technology. I think that number may spike. Uh, absolutely. You're, you're totally right, and, and it does change in the generation. So, you know, my kids have grown up with one from sort of kindergarten uh, up, and, uh, and that's kind of a good thing to introduce them early to think, because it's not such a a dependent. I know my kids aren't dependent on it. I know that uh, they they don't use it 24 hours a day, and that drives me crazy. You know, we sh- should, as parents, help our kids to to not be that way. You know, not to pull it out at the dinner table or not to pull it out in a restaurant and and uh, have it. I mean, I, I use mine, and it's used for work. But uh, the kids don't have work, and they they use it just to stay in touch. And and that report also shows that they would rather text than talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. And again, that's different in my generation. I'd rather pick up the phone and talk to somebody. If you want to see something terrifying at some point, there is a new feature on most of the iPhones. I don't know if it's on all the smartphones that allows you at the end of the day to go and look and see how many minutes, how many hours you've spent on the phone, on the device that day. And man, all of a sudden I've checked a couple times and then I stopped because it, uh, <laughs> that made me anxious. Well, it's, it's a good eye opener. Uh, and, and that's, uh, what we put in the, in the realm of uh, digital health. So the ability to, to know exactly how long you're spending on different things and, and it'll break it down. So you, you can see that, geez, I have a, a bad dependence on candy crush. I, I've spent two hours on that yesterday when I only spent, uh, you know, five minutes on my email. So yeah. 
yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good eye-opener, and uh, I encourage everybody to use it. At the very beginning of this Simply Report, almost I think it's the first page, there is a line that uh, points out that when it comes to technology, some love it and others loathe it. Now, I know that there are those who love it. In this generation that we have right now, the people who are alive now, from zero to 90, do most, do, are there many people that feel that you believe that actually loathe technology? I don't think so. I, I really don't. Um, if they loathe it, they don't understand it, or they uh, haven't taken the time to see what it can do for them. Because, uh, I, again, like I said, from from Rolling Thunder standpoint, I enable this in in business life. Uh, you know, these devices do things for people. And, and what do they do? Well, maybe they free up time so that that person can go golfing once more time a month, or or uh, you know, it, it leads to better sales or whatever it is. There's a reason to use it. Uh, and these things make make me efficient as well. If I didn't have my device and and my my software that we use here, I couldn't do the job that I do. And I do the job. You know, if you looked at what what I do today in a in a full day, and put that back twenty thirty years ago, that would have taken you know five people, six people to do. I'm doing that with one person, and and the use of technology. Derek, so yeah, there you, are reasons to use it. When you mentioned twenty or thirty years ago, I don't know if you've watched Stranger Things on netflix the the series i have and the only reason i mentioned stranger things is because for those who don't know it is a series it's a fun series it's like a science fiction fantasy monster series but it's based in the 80s which is not all that long ago and as you watch it though you realize there's not a smartphone there's not a cell phone it's before pagers even uh computers it is it is computers have green screens it's (laughs) stunning how rapidly our life i mean how rapidly our lives have changed and how different even in this movie, in this series, because it's a good reminder how differently lives behave and people behave without that stuff. Well, exactly. Um, and we, that goes down to something that we call Moore's Law, uh, the principle of, of, of computing, uh, the speed and the capability are expected to double every two years. Double. Wow. And so that, that, that really goes to how many uh, resistors we can put on these, on these chips. And so... You know, computers that uh, that used to take rooms, we, we can put all of that computing power right in a simple handheld phone. Yeah, I don't know if it's true, but I read somewhere a little while back that the entire computer system that got the Apollo 11 ship to the moon could now be contained in an iPhone. Which, I, and I don't that's, know if that's exactly that's true, but true. it's it's stunning. Yeah, like, absolutely. it's stunning to think yeah. about that. And once you have the technology, it's impossible to think about how we got by without it once upon a time. If we, if we had to completely take away all the stuff that we have now and go back to the 80s or 70s or 60s, we'd be completely lost. I couldn't do what I do. I, I tell you, that's, uh, it's, it's impossible. Now, let me ask you this question. Do, have you adopted smart home? Not really. Little bits and pieces and, here and there. And I think what when people do, that will become the norm. It will uh, it will become the norm. I've uh, again, I adopt it very quickly because um, I'm always up on the latest technology. But uh, you know, I I come home and I say things, and things happen. <laughs> I don't go to switches anymore. Uh, I I, uh, I don't tune in the radio. I just say you know, listen to AM nine hundred. You know, I have that ability to do that, and it just plays through the house so it's really it's really great when you get to a point uh, it's only going to get better because artificial intelligence is getting better so instead of 
you know, just uh, spitting out a, a command to something. We can have full conversations. That sounds funny, but it's true. Uh, the, the new versions of uh, uh, Cortana and, uh, and Siri and, and Google, they all have this conversational capability, so I just don't have to bark orders at it. I can actually have a talk. It talks back to me. I talk back to it, and it seems more human. Um, that will, over the next five years, uh, explode. And we're just at the tip of the iceberg of artificial intelligence. Derek, a moment ago you mentioned that kids would prefer, in a lot of cases, to text rather than talk. This has completely, there's no question that social media, texting, phones, these kind of things have changed how we socialize. Have they taught, have they kept a generation from learning how to socialize as normal people face to face has has it has it almost created something where now we've got a generation of kids who don't know how to look face to face and just talk well you can look at the at what's going on in the world and and um you know i i look at the bad things i look at these shootings that we see every day and i wonder if technology and and that ability to socially interact uh with people rather than devices has an impact on that. You know, I think about uh, a child growing up, and maybe it's not a good home, maybe it is a good home, but uh, they are sort of locked away in the basement. They're on their they're on their devices, they're on their their Xbox or or whatever, and they don't really have social interaction um, as as we know social interaction. You know, sitting with somebody and talking to them and. Um, and I wonder if that has an impact on uh, what we're what we're seeing here in uh, in in these uh, disasters that are happening, um, where where killing is is not uh, not a big thing to them because they've they've seen it on screen and they've done it before, so it, it sort of desensitizes them. I'm hoping that's not the case, and I, and and if I ask my kids, I mean that wouldn't be the case, but. Um, you you hear where I'm coming from? Yeah, where yeah. that social interaction scares me. Uh, if a person isn't a real person, they're just a face or a name on a computer. Correct. So uh, so yeah, and, and and then when they get into the real world, that may be the same ideals that they have. This person isn't real to me. This person, I don't know them. I don't really care about them. Um, I'm hoping that that <laughs> something changes there because I, I really get uh, disheartened to seeing this. Um, this every day, it, and, and it is. It's every day. It's, it's. It used to be, you know, once a year or something like that, and now it seems like a, such a common occurrence, and and it's sad. We got just about one minute left here, Derek. The 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 last thing that I want to point out from this report, and there's so many things in it. As you say, it's worth going and looking up because it's really actually very very fascinating. Uh, but one of the things I want to get to, it says times, it, it talks about time saving, that the that the technology that we have has, and you refer to this, that you're doing the job of six people now. It certainly has sped things up, but it says we are saving time. That's a big benefit of our technology. I, I question that. I'm wondering if we're really saving time or just moving it around because now with our technology, we're just finding other things in technology to do. So we're not really saving it. We're just doing other things. Uh I, I think we are saving, and uh, let's let's take anything. Let's take banking, okay? I'm going to do a bank transaction. What do you have to do in the old world? You have to get in your car. You have to drive to the bank. You have to talk to somebody. You have to show them your bank book, or I could just do that. So, boom, I've saved time. Let's talk about um, uh, a sales meeting. 
I normally have to fly over all over the world. I have a client in Vancouver. I have to go to get a plane, and I got to go sit with them, and I got to talk to them. I can do that instantly over. To, there's just two examples yeah, of yeah. where where this saves time. Uh, it does. The, the, the first, the second one. I can't argue at all with you about the fact you, you rather than getting on a plane doing FaceTime, there's no way to argue that point. The first one, online banking, it absolutely is faster to bank online than driving to the bank. But I, I also think that if you go on your computer or on your phone or whatever to do some banking, and now you've done that in 30 seconds, you're probably going to go to YouTube and watch a video or two. So ultimately <laughs> that part, you may have just ended up spending the same amount of time because your device lures you in. But the second one, no, you're absolutely right. It, it, traveling the world, if you can, it, there's no way to compare that. That is absolutely a time saver. Yeah. Anyway, it is, uh, well, it's fast. It's, it's interesting. And I'm glad you brought the, uh, the article to light because uh, it's quite good. It's called The Simply Report, S-I-M-P-L-I-I Report 2019, Deep Dive on Digital Trends in Canada. Give it a read. It really is very interesting to dive into. Uh, Derek Sardo, President of Rolling Thunder, appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this, Derek. Anytime. Nice talking to you. Take care. We will take a quick break. Back after this. Stay with us. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show Podcast on 900 CHML. I think there are a lot of women, and I'm not speaking as a woman, certainly, and I only know women, so I've only talked to them about this, but it seems like there's a lot of women who, given their choice, would prefer to give birth at home rather than in a hospital room. It's private, it's familiar, it's comfortable, there aren't people walking in and out of the room all the time, it just seems like for a lot of them it's a happier place, and when you're in a situation where you're giving birth, I think a happier place is a good idea. Anyway, the trouble is... What about the health of the baby? You don't want to do anything that is going to put you as the mother or the baby at risk. That's, that's a long-standing thing. Who would ever want to do that? So McMaster has been looking at this. McMaster has just published a large study that suggests having your baby at home is just as safe as having it at the hospital. This is, this is an important thing for a lot of people who are interested in this. And, and of course, I'm saying this assuming that you are in a non-high-risk pregnancy. Different story if that's the case. But it is an interesting piece. I want to bring in Eileen Hutton. She's a professor emeritus of obstetrics and gynecology at McMaster. She's founding director of the McMaster Midwifery Research Center, and she is the first author of this paper. Eileen, thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Is this not exactly what midwives have been arguing for decades now? Well, I don't, I don't know that we've been arguing it, but we've certainly been, been um, we've certainly felt quite confident in saying that for low-risk women, um, in, under the care of a, of a qualified practitioner, giving birth at home is, um, is a good choice. But was there a time, or even up till recently, has there been a time that a vast segment of the population believed that having a baby at home was vastly more dangerous? You know, I think it's really interesting when you when you think about that in the in the uh, Cana- if we look at the Canadian sort of uh, history, you can see that the transition from birthing at home, which happened for almost everyone two generations ago, shifted pretty dramatically in the 30s in the t- between the 1920s and the 1940s to to people giving birth in hospital. And during that same period of time, we saw an equally dramatic change in the rate of perinatal mortality. So that's that's um, deaths of babies, um, both 
during birth and immediately after birth, as well as um, really dramatically improved outcomes for mothers. And people have really linked those two things in their minds, but we've never had any good evidence that there's, that there's causation. In other words, that giving birth in hospital was the cause of those improved outcomes. I think, though, in fairness, people, it's an easy, it's an easy association to make and one that's, that's been really readily accepted without much evaluation. In the 20s or 30s, or back whenever people started to much more commonly, to a vast majority, I would assume, start to have babies in the hospital, what was the thinking behind that? What was the reason that all of a sudden, was it just because now we could because we had the technology? I think there was a whole variety of reasons. One of the big cha- uh, game changers was that in hospital they were started using um, anesthetics for mothers and, mm. and uh, relieving pain. And that was a big draw for, for really the upper class women. And a lot of times change like that is, is led by the, uh, by the upper classes, at least back in, in the day. That was really the case. Um, and we, we saw the people... Um, viewed, for example, a Queen Victoria used used um, anesthetics during her birth, and people said, "Why, why haven't we got that universally accessible?" And that really drove a lot of the attraction of birth to hospital, because that obviously couldn't be provided at home. Um, so, so we saw that the movement begin to take place, and then once once it was in hospital, it became much easier for um, for um, physicians to provide care in hospital in a centralized place than it did going out to, to people's homes and so on and so forth. And I would assume there is a certain amount of logic or common sense that you would tie in, specifically that the equipment is there, you have a greater collection of doctors there. If something does go wrong, your chances of getting some sort of rapid treatment is greater if you're there. Yeah, and I think we've also, you know, if you if you look at how we, how we have... Um, framed birth. Uh, if you look at, for example, the Hollywood um, imaging of birth, it's always very rapid, very high risk, very, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a lot of drama attached to the, to the birth process. Whereas in fact, birth is a, is a really pretty slow process. It takes a lot of, a lot of work. It's a, it's a very um, visceral process. And, and as you pointed out in your introduction, it really takes place best where somebody's comfortable where um, and and um, um, that the feeling comfortable in your environment probably enhances the the outcomes of the birth so just a second for those who have not seen a birth live you're telling me that what you see on TV when you have one loud <laughs> grunt two pushes and the baby pops out looking perfect that doesn't happen sorry. Oh man. Well, thankfully I've seen two of them with my own kids, so I knew better, but there are some people, you know, you've burst their bubble so significantly. My baby doesn't come out with combed hair looking all groomed and everything. Wow. Who knew that? Um, it is though, it, it is, I would bet though, still a challenge. Even if you're saying, look, we've got this study now that shows that the numbers are essentially the same. And I think that's what the study shows. There's no difference yeah. in really in the results. There are still, I would expect, going to be people who say, listen, uh, if I can be in a medical facility where if anything possible goes wrong, there is someone to treat me or the facilities, I feel way more comfortable doing it there. Yep, absolutely. I think it's also important to know that when, you're, when we're looking at, at home births, particularly in, in the Canadian context, um, we're looking at home births 
that are attended by, by midwives who are, are trained with four years university education, um, specifically looking at providing care both in home and in hospital, but they have, um, they have uh, a wealth of experience in providing care at home and carry with them sort of first-line treatments for, for those um, um, situations that might emerge as being needing urgent care. So, so it's, um, I always compare giving birth at home to giving birth in one of the small level one hospitals in the province. So let's, but let's, let's jump back for one second, because you mentioned that in 1920s or 30s, when the hospital thing started happening prior to that, and the midwives now, you're saying, you know, four years university, what were the people who were doing it at home before we pushed to hospitals? Because it's a little bit different, I would assume. Well, there's, there was a variety of different care attendants. A lot of, a lot of, uh, in a lot of situations, women were either unattended or attended by neighbors. Um, for their births, VON nurses did births at that time. Um, we didn't have registered midwives in the province during that period of time, although very early on in Canada, in the, ni- in the 1700s, for example, there were midwives who were providing care in some of the, uh, in some of the um, government forts and so on. Um, and, and in the Native communities, there's, uh, Aboriginal midwives have, have uh, provided care always. So I think there's, during the, during the 20s and 30s, when we began to see the transition of, of care to hospital, some family docs would have been doing home births, um, some, some, as I said, VON nurses, um, Victoria Order nurses, um, some women were attended by their, by their neighbors. So okay. a real variety of care providers. So let me ask what's probably a really simple and maybe a really dumb question. And it's probably the first thing you and that you talk about on day one of midwifery school. What exactly can a doctor in hospital do that a midwife can't? Well, I think that, um, in hospital you have access to, um, to surgery and, and, and to anesthetic. So we have neither of those things at home. I mean, we do, for example, we can do an episiotomy at home, we can repair an episiotomy at home, but we can't do a cesarean section at home, which is, I guess, fairly obvious. Um, And those are sometimes necessary in the management of care. I think the the thing that's maybe important to understand is that most often when women... um, intend to give birth at home but then need to move into hospital. The reason for moving into hospital most often is for pain management or for a, a labor that's slow to progress or not progressing as, as, as in, a, in a straightforward um, a manner as you might anticipate. So there are sometimes occasions when it is more urgent, where it's a more um, emergency situation, but the emergencies are much there are many fewer than, than uh, you might expect. What percentage? I mean, take a, a, a wild guess of women who may want to or may start with their birthing process at home end up having to go to hospital. Is it common? It's common enough. And, and um, in some of the earlier research that we did, um, we reported on that. And to be honest, I'd have to look up the numbers for you. I, I don't have them on the top of my head. But um, the the percentage for for if you're having your first baby the likelihood of of moving into hospital is somewhere in the order again i'm having to guesstimate this i'm going to say between about 30% wow okay um but if you're if you're um going in by by ambulance it's a much much lower rate than that maybe 
maybe uh, four or five percent. Uh, another delicate question, uh, perhaps, because it sounds, I, I don't know how to, not everybody's home is the same. There are some people who keep yeah. a really clean home. There are some people whose home is not as clean. Can everybody give birth at home or are there times when a midwife has to say, this is not an appropriate location for someone to give birth? Yeah, we. There, it is possible that we could say that. Um, certainly, um, we typically would do a, a home visit before the birth to uh, evaluate the home environment but i mean most homes are reasonable are are reasonable to give birth the baby's going home there afterwards one way or the other um Fair enough. and and the you know the exposure to the to the um home environment is probably healthier for a baby than than exposure to a foreign environment such as a hospital provides so it's um there are situations where the where there are other risks that um, either the, the the birthing mother or the midwives wouldn't want to um, undertake in terms of the birth environment. But for the most part, most homes are are um, reasonable places for birth. Eileen, are we seeing more women who want to give birth at home these days? Um, well, certainly the numbers are growing. I mean, the overall numbers are small. So in Canada right now, the birth, the home birth rate is somewhere between one and, and three percent. In the United States, it's it's equally small but growing. And um, so it's it's an uh, it's a, a phenomenon that I think has captured the interest of some. Um, as you've pointed out earlier in the in this interview, you know, not everyone will choose to have a, a home birth. Many will will determine that they want the security or the or the sense of security that a hospital might provide to them. But I think that um, I think that this studies like this one are important to be able to inform not only women but the but the pu- the public and and um, policymakers around what risk we're really talking about. Right now in Canada, um, birth is the is the number one reason for admission to hospital. So it certainly is something that from a from a um, healthcare cost perspective, um, something that we we maybe should be considering, you know, whether whether hospitals and the and the costly care that's involved there is the appropriate place for for everyone to give birth. I mean, it's a really interesting point. We only have a couple of minutes left here. It's a really interesting point. Do you know off the top of your head what a home birth with a midwife costs the system, roughly? I don't know. Because I, I would have to think that it would be a lot less expensive than to be doing it in a hospital, whatever the number is. Yeah. The, when you when you factor in the what we call the hotel costs of the hospital, so the, the, the very existence of taking up a hospital bed, um, that alone... Um, Adds, adds significant cost to the, yeah. to the cost no of kidding. everything. Yeah. Uh, last thing before we let you go. I find it interesting. I'm, uh, I've talked many times on my show to Dr. Jean Chamberlain, who is oh, uh, yeah. with Save the Mothers, and it's a, a group that does work over in the developing world in Uganda. And what I find really interesting is in many places in the world, they're working so diligently to try and get women away from giving birth at home to giving birth in a clinic or in a hospital. We're now looking mm-hmm. to try and move the other way. Um, it, yeah. But it's it's apples and oranges, right? There, like, there's no comparison because of the people who will be in the home, as we talked about earlier. Yeah, it is, it is apples and oranges. I I think that um, this study that is reporting on um, studies that are derived from the well-resourced countries, so it's not including those 
those um, any studies that might be out there looking at birthing at home. But I, I think we're, what you're really comparing or looking at there is birth without adequate support um, at home versus, you know, moving women into clinics and hospitals. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure that's even the best approach in some of those settings. I, if we could move um, well-trained care providers into into the homes, um, women might have improved outcomes. I've I've visited and and um, done some limited um, teaching in hospitals in um, under-resourced countries, and you know, if all women moved into hospital, they would be overwhelmed and quite incapable of providing uh, adequate care. The the resources just across the board are really um, just not there. To and also. Birth. We, and we got to go, unfortunately. Also, yeah. we also hear, presumably, by the time you are giving birth, you've been checked by a doctor a bunch of times. They know if you're high risk or low risk, yeah. as opposed to there where you show up and it's a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Eileen Hutton, who is the Professor Emeritus of Obstetrics and Gynecology at McMaster and founding director of the McMaster Midwifery Research Center. Thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott will be back next week. I promise. At least that's what I've been promised. Scott will be back next week. In the meantime, here to drive us home this Friday, joining us in studio, Rick Zamperin. Literally, I'm going to get in everyone's car and drive them home. That would be great. That would be a great service. If this whole media thing doesn't work out. I should invent something like that. Kind of a a (laughs) valet Uber. I'm going to call it Zuber. Zuber. Yes. <laughs> Z- Zamperin's Uber. I like that. Z- and, and if you could mix it with sort of exercising dance, it could be, wow. you could Zuber to Zumba with Zamp. Well, think about that. Yeah. Get one of those t- VW um, vans and just flatten out the back. People can do their yoga back there while I drive them home. Have you ever done Zumba? No. Good. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to contemplate the idea of you or I doing Zumba no, no. in our Lululemon pants. Can't do it. And our downward dog yoga position. <laughs> I, that, I mean, this is not what we're going to talk about, but... Oh, come on. But, well, okay. <laughs> I've never gone... Have you ever gone to yoga? Have you ever done yoga? I've never gone to yoga. I've I've passed gymnasiums or gyms where people are doing yoga, and I kind of just stare at them for a second and think, I could never do that. It's just a little, for me, a little too personal. It's something like I, I'm not flexible enough to do. Well, it. that too. So if it was, but if it was, if it was in my house, and if I was going to take a stab at it with a YouTube video or something, right? You okay. could do that, sure. Uh, even though I would probably end up snapping a hamstring and be <laughs> caught, found on my floor <laughs> three weeks later, dead. See, I've done this in my living room when a uh, few many years back, my kids got me uh, the Wii for oh, yes. uh, Father's Day. Yes, and one of the apparatus or apparatus was the, <laughs> the Wii Fit, which is this board where you can stand and do different things. And, yes, and one of it was the, the the yoga portion of it. And yes, you can stand on it, but you can also put your hands on it and do these the downward dogs and the sunshines or whatever. They're called. Um, and so I would do that. The flailing flamingo. Yeah, all these kind of things. And uh, some of them were more difficult than others. <laughs> and after a few months, I thought, okay, enough of the yoga. But doing it by yourself is one thing. The problem with every yoga class that I've ever seen on TV or anywhere, because I've not been in one, is that it's not a straight line of people. There are rows of people. Right. Yes. I don't want to be behind someone when they are in a yoga pose. awkward pose yeah. where they're bottom region is pointing in my face and I don't want to be the one pointing my bottom in someone's face. So you don't want to be at the front or at the rear of the class. No. And then (laughs) not long ago, I heard about nude yoga and I went, 
Okay. Wow. Yeah. Is okay. it nude hot yoga? Probably. Because if it's you cold. Don't be nude cold yoga. No, or I don't want that. Like that's called Costanza <laughs> yoga. <laughs> yes. I just, uh, I don't understand. But but the, what did you call it? The uh, Zuber? Zuber Zumba with Zant. That's a thing. I think yeah. is a thing. Okay. We can start working on the uh, trademark for that. Uh, we, I did want to talk to you about the Hamilton Ticats. They play a game tomorrow night, Saturday mm-hmm. night, against BC. And I was going to say, big game against BC. Uh, big game with Dane Evans after a loss. Is there such a thing as a big game in the CFL East this year? Um, the Ticats, almost by forfeit, are going to roll to win this division. They should. But I think there's a little bit of a curveball now that Jeremiah Masoli is no longer quarterbacking uh, said Tiger Cats. Uh, Dane Evans is a competent quarterback. Uh, he hasn't wowed us yet. He hasn't uh, been disastrous, although he only has had one start this season. Um, so I think the jury is still out on whether he's going to be the next guy or can be a next guy. Uh, the defense is playing fantastic. The special teams is playing great. And BC, from top to bottom, is not playing good at all. So That's an understatement. Yeah. I mean, they're 1-6. They've given up, I think, the most points. They've scored the second-fewest points. They have allowed the most sacks this season. Uh, they, I think, generated the second-lowest net offensive total in the history of the CFL in their last game against Saskatchewan a couple of weeks ago. They had the bye, they're coming off the bye week. They're 2-6 and six off the bye since tw- uh, 2016 or 2006. But the fact of the matter is, BC struggling. However, um, you know we've seen this before: a team that is struggling, one and six off the bye. The pressure's kind of off a little bit, at least. I mean, if they lose another game, well, you know, ho hum, they're one and seven. But I, I think they'll be jacked for this game, and I think Hamilton's got to be careful. Well, last week was, I would say, last week was understandable for Hamilton, a new quarterback coming in, and so you lose that game. But this typically traditionally this is the kind of game that Hamilton tends to blow. Yes. You've played a great game 2 weeks ago against Winnipeg, the top team in the league. You look great, you shut them down. Again, I sort of put off last week. This is the game then when you've got a stinker of a team. Mm-hmm. I mean, am I wrong over the years? This is the no, kind of this is the moment where Hamilton goes yeah, and the next week they'll play it. a good team and they'll go, okay, we can win again. We've seen it time in, time out. And, you know, truth be told, game number one of this season, they're at home against Saskatchewan. It's kind of a meh game. Neither team is kind of doing anything. And we've seen, in many cases, the Ticats just hand the victory to the other team. Um, but this time, they ended up winning that that first game. Last week, yeah, it was one of those games where no one knew what Dane Evans was going to bring to the table. He struggled, I think, mightily, especially in the first half. They finally found their rhythm in the third quarter, but at the end of the game, they just couldn't you know, pull it out. Um, yeah, this is one of those games where here's a team from the West who is struggling. Uh, the Ticats have in the past, whether they you know, let their foot off the gas or don't take them seriously, which at this level I don't think happens. But I think in the back of their mind, they might think, okay, this is a winnable game. We'll just take it. Uh, as I said, they got to be careful. But I think BC is going to be hungry. I just I look at the East, and I think Montreal is overachieving big time right now. Agreed. Yeah. Toronto got a win last week, but I, I don't expect to see too many more of those this year. And Ottawa is... Nah. Ottawa's a bit of a wild card. I mean, Ottawa, I, yeah. They have moments, but then they look awful other times. They started great. They've I think they've hit the wall a little bit. You know, they're going to be... Around 500, probably sub 500, you know, an eight, maybe seven win team. I want to get back to Dane Evans in a second, but since we're talking about the East and the West, I mean, right now, and it's still early-ish, I mean, we're getting, close to, we're getting close to the halfway point of the season. The crossover, if the season ended today, is in play yes. again. <laughs> yep. 
again. Edmonton has it right now. I mean, Rick, at some point, does something not have to be done about this? And I'm not, I'm not, I I mean, I suppose the crossover is the thing that is done about it, but it, it just seems like it's the same old story and the East is perpetually, at least in modern times, terrible. Yeah. You know, the crossover was brought in because I think a lot of those, and it's always been a Western team that's crossed yeah, over. Never once an an Eastern East. team has never crossed over. Uh, I think there would be a parade in that city for the team in the East that crosses over to the West. Um, Unless it was Toronto, then they would go, we have a well, team? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but it was created because those teams in the West were stronger and they wanted to give a little bit more of excitement factor towards the end of the season in terms of, you know, will this team be able to cross over? They wanted to reward, a, you know, a better Western team. Uh, I think it was last year that all five teams were better than the top three, at least, in in the East Division. When the Schooners come in, I'm not sure it's going to change any, because here's an expansion team, unless they follow the same rules as Ottawa, who got a, a bit of a break in terms of, you know, player quality. I don't really see it changing, and I'm not sure what the magic pill is, or even if it exists. Well, uh, I would suggest two things. Everyone who's a traditionalist hates it, but I would say one division one with division, the yeah. best six teams getting in. That's one way. And the other thing I would say is that I don't ever believe that a – have the crossover if you want, but no team with a worse record should ever host a playoff game. Right. And so if the crossover team is better than the second-place team in the East, they should be able to host. Makes Because, no, I, I mean, I think that there is a chance that the second-place team in the East this year has seven wins. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Seven, maybe. And the fourth-place team in the West might have ten. How do they not get home field? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that. Anyway, we'll 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 have lots of time this year to talk about that. <laughs> yes, as we uh, have in the past years. Yeah, as we have in past years. So back to Dane Evans for a second. Yeah. Here's a guy who put up Timmy Chang like numbers at Tulsa. Everyone remembers Timmy Chang. Oh, yeah. He's the poster boy University for. Of Hawaii, yeah. Well, he's the poster boy for quarterbacks that were supposed to be outstanding and then absolutely pooped out and became yeah. nothing. But Timmy Chang's numbers at Hawaii years ago, ten years ago, twelve years ago now. Ron, yeah. Ron Lancaster was still coach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, were enormous, and then he couldn't play. Dane Evans, I don't think Dane Evans is Timmy Chang. That's not the point. But why do guys who have so much success in passing offenses, CFL-ish offenses in the States, so Mm -hmm. they're not coming in from a ball control thing. They play on teams that vaguely resemble CFL-style games. Why do they struggle so much? Name the last quarterback. Before you answer that, name the last quarterback who came into the CFL, Bo Levi Mitchell, maybe. And just mm. without skipping a beat, just took off and yeah. went. But there's not many. He'd probably be the closest one. Aside from that, you'd have to probably go way back. Yeah. I mean, it just yeah, doesn't in, happen. In recent times, yeah, I can't think so of So why? Well, I think there's a number of factors, and they're probably all the CFL cliche kind of factors. Uh, you know, the, the art off the ball doesn't mean anything for a quarterback unless you're sneaking. Um, but when you're passing the football, yeah, the wider field makes a difference. You know, to throw from one hash mark to the wide side of Shouldn't the field. should make it easier, though? Bigger field, well, more space. Yeah, bigger field, more space, but there's also an extra guy in the field to take into account. There's the waggle. Uh, you know, there's guys who are, you know, scheming towards your weaknesses, obviously. But, yeah, the fact of the matter is the wider field, I think, is the biggest impact and obviously the extra guy. So a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a week and a half ago, I asked Orlando Steinauer at a press conference whether this benefit – now, you don't want Jeremiah Masoli hurt, period. That's not a benefit to the team. Right. But if he's going to be hurt, it's not week 15. It's not week 16. It's early in the season. Sure. So Dane Evans has 12, 10, 11 games to figure things out. And I said, is this beneficial to the team, relatively speaking? And right. he sort of poo-pooed it and goes, I don't know. 
I think it is. I think it's got to be a massive advantage that you're in a weak Eastern division mm-hmm. and that you've got a quarterback who's got a dozen games to figure out what he's doing yeah, with this team before the playoffs come. Yeah, yeah if Masoli's injured in game 18 or 16, They're as you said. Yeah, I mean, Dane Evans comes in and now he's got not not learn the offense, but he has to execute the offense that he hasn't been doing all year. So now he has, yeah, a handful of games, more than 10 games to work with the offense to find some chemistry, to find that rhythm, uh, to have some highs and lows, because there's going to be adversity throughout the season with every quarterback, with every player, with every team. Um, so to iron out all those kind of wrinkles and to figure it out. You know, I, I, I always remember talking to Danny Mack. He said it took him five years to figure out the CFL game. And here's a guy who had a good career at Florida State. Great career. Uh, yeah, and you know, he, I, I know he bounced around from team to team, but it took him five years to say, yeah, I get this. So... To thrust Dane Evans into this situation with a great defense and a really good special teams unit, he has some tools around him on offense that he could be a good quarterback and, and generate uh, you know a lot of points with a prolific offense. Uh, he's going to have ten games to figure that out. And is that enough? Because I mean, I look at the who are the who would you say in the modern era are the best quarterbacks in C, in the CFL in the modern era? So in the new millennium, Doug Flutie, Flutie, Calvillo, yep. Damon Allen, okay, um, Dunnigan. He may be just on the brink Maybe of that. Maybe on the periphery, yeah. Henry Burris would be up there. Uh, man, I'm missing one, I know. All right, so let's go through those. Doug Flutie yeah. didn't succeed right off the bat. He was rough no, when he first yeah. started with yeah, BC. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Calvillo. Calvillo. Yes, he everyone run in, out of town. Everyone in Hamilton remembers that. He was horrible. Yeah. Uh, Damon Allen didn't start right away. Right. Dunnigan didn't start right away. Yeah. Uh, Henry Burris started in Saskatchewan, right? right. Or was it Calgary? Uh, no, I think it was Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, and yeah. wasn't great right away. Yeah. Tried to stand in the NFL, came back here. And most of those guys, though, took more than even 10 or 12 games. They took a couple oh, of years. Oh, sure. yeah. So... Oh, Ricky Ray, there's a guy. Ricky Ray. Now, there's a guy who... There's a guy who, I mean, he started with Sacramento, the gold miners, mm-hmm. and I think was pretty... I think it was okay. Mind you, I think they had a pretty good team. But he might be the last kind of guy who... You know, came out of college, although he was driving a Frito-Lay truck. So That's he true. didn't come right out of college, but still, he had a great career. And for those who are sticklers for accuracy, which you should be, by the way, uh, I forgot, who did Calvillo? Calvillo didn't start in Hamilton. He started, was it no, Memphis? No, that was, uh, was it Memphis or Las Vegas? I one, was Las Vegas. one of the two, Las yeah. Vegas. So he was there the day that uh, the anthem was butchered by, um, yeah. <laughs> by uh, the, uh, I'll think of the lounge singer's name in a minute. Oh, yeah. The greatest Canadian national anthem what was, performance. What was the t- uh, he sung it to Oh Christmas Tree, wasn't Oh Christmas it? Tree, yeah, yeah. yes. Well, he sung it to a variety of different <laughs> tunes that all melded together into a yeah. mashup of Oh Canada that, wow. um, yeah, well, man, I'll have to think of that guy's name. I can picture his hair blowing. Yes, blowing in the wind. L- lustily in the breeze. <laughs> all the women in the crowd in the just ooing and aahing with the mountains and sunlight and nobody yes. in the stands. Yeah. Uh, golden just, tones. So that's Saturday, 7.30, uh, BC here. Yeah, 7 o'clock here. 7 o'clock 10 o'clock here. for the fifth quarter. 10 o'clock for the fifth quarter with Rick Zamperin right here on 900 CHML. Be sure you call in with or without liquid courage. You always <laughs> welcome people who've had a few pops, right? Yes, especially if you're doing some hot yoga. <laughs> <laughs> Very quickly, you wrote a piece. I have to get to this. Yeah. Uh, you wrote a piece uh, for your comment this week about Kevin Durant Talking about Toronto fans saying they can mock me when I wreck my Achilles or whatever because they're never going back to the finals. Is he really wrong? You know, forever is a long time. Maybe in his lifetime, you know, he's 30, 
Let's give him at least another 50 years. So will the Raptors get to the NBA Finals in the next 50 years? I don't know. I don't know. And then this year, probably not. Not it's, with the roster they have right now. It's so hard when you look at the way the NBA is going. Last year, I think, was great, but it was an outlier because this is a league about superstars. And exactly. you've got to now have two or three on your team. Yeah. And the Raptors are seemingly unable to attract free agents. Yeah. And if you can't attract free agents, there's only so many Kawhi Leonard trades that you can make. Exactly. And now, and when you look at your roster, and I know we're pressed for time here, but Kyle Lowry, Marcus Gasol, Serge Ibaka, uh, all these guys are going to be gone, gone, gone after gone. this year. Maybe even this year. Yep. If, they, if they don't play well, uh, you know, Masai Ujiri is going to say, hey, we, we need some assets for and, these guys. And for the next two years, the 900 CHML YMCA men's pickup team may be competitive with the remnants of the Raptors. Could be. That and the Washington Generals. That and the Washington Generals. <laughs> we'll all go to hot yoga, hot naked yoga together <laughs> oh, and see how that... Oh, no. Ugh. Don't want to send people off into their weekend with that visual. Uh, Rick Zamperin, thanks for doing this you as always. It. Anytime. Uh, again, fifth quarter after the game tomorrow night. Tune in here on 900CHML. Give Rick a call. Rant or praise, whichever way things go. That's up to you. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.